Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've come to the part of Genesis where the focus has shifted from the origins of the world and just different things happening in the primeval world to focus on one man. We saw in the last few weeks how, how God had called out a pagan worshipper named Abram to himself. And it is through Abram that God will bring about the restoration of this world where It is through Abram and the promises given to Abram that the promise to remove the curse and sin and death would come about. In fact, this man, Abram, as we move on in the pages of Scripture, is described as the father of all those who will have faith. He's described as a friend of God. He's a man who will grow in his character and who will grow deep in his faith of this true and living God. So great is Abraham that by, during the time of Jesus, when Jesus is talking about calling people to repentance and calling them to God, the, the Jews at the time come to him and say, are you greater than Abraham? I mean, this is how great a man Abraham was. And particularly... The focus on Abraham we will see in chapters 12 all the way down to chapter 25. And what you'll see is this man, Abram, who's been called out. He starts off by, you know, by trusting in the Lord. Yet he is still a man And he falls and distrusts God and goes off the way quite a few times. And what we see is uh, through the next few chapters is that there's a series of tests that come about in his life. And through these tests, although he falters, over time he grows in faith. And ultimately in Genesis 22, his faith has so grown that final test that God gives him, he passes with flying colors. So it's a wonderful journey that we will see as we trace the life of Abram here. So the past few weeks, we've just really seen of how God is called out this man, Abram, out of pagan idolatry. He's responded in faith, and and God has told him that 
God will bless him. And really, if you, if you tease out the, the blessings or the promises that were given to Abram, fundamentally, most theologians will say that you can divide this into three, which is land promises, seed promises, and, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. And really, 12 to 15, God tests him first with regards to the promise of the land, and 16 all the way down to 22, God will test him more about the promise of the seed. And so here we see, while last week we saw of how Abram has responded greatly, and he's come into this land of Canaan, where there's pagan idolatry still going on. It's a world of darkness. Right there, while he's not building empires for himself, he's not building anything for his name, he's building altars, worshipping the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord in that dark and pagan world at this time. But in this section, we see that Abram will falter. He will lose his way. And really, looking at this, we will see much of our own self in Abram. Our own sinfulness and our sinful tendencies. But even more than that, we will see the God of Abraham because it is that same God that we see today. So let's look first. I've just divided this section into uh, two headings. First, God's testing and Abram's response in verses 10 through to 16. And then in verses 17 all the way down to chapter 13 and 4, we'll see God's intervening and Abram's response. So first let's look at God's testing and Abram's response. Verse 10. It says, There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. There was famine in the land. Now, the land of Canaan, it was a land that was heavily dependent on rainfall. It was heavily dependent on rain for its produce. And at this point in time, there's a drought. There's not enough rain happening. And so there's not enough produce, which means there's not enough food. And when you think about Abram, Abram had a lot of people with him in his household, his wife, his nephew Lot, and all the people that he acquired in Haran. And then on top of that, all the cattle, the flocks and herds that he acquired from Haran. But now there's famine in the land. There's no food. How are they going to survive? 
I mean, this is famine in the land, the very land that God promised to Abram and his descendants. The land that is in the middle of the nations. That strategic place that God has appointed so that his salvation would then go out to the rest of the nations. This promised land at this point has become barren. There is a severe famine going on. And so what is Abram to do? And really this this famine is really God testing Abram about the land. It is God testing to see if Abram would trust God about the land that God had given to him, even though there is now a famine there. But you might be thinking, but why is God doing this in Abram's life? I mean, isn't it enough that Abram left everything, his homeland, that life of sin and idolatry to follow the true and living God? And then on top of that, he's being a great testimony, a great witness in the land of Canaan by building these altars, calling on the name of the Lord in the midst of this hostile world. Isn't that enough? I mean, why does God want to test Abram and put him through this trial and difficulty? Well, for the same reason, God tests us as believers. So that our faith is stretched and we grow and mature in our faith. See, God is not doing this to harm Abram. God doesn't bring trials and testing into the lives of believers to somehow harm us. No, God brings trials into our lives so that it builds up our faith in God, so that we're not tossed to and fro like the wind with every difficult circumstance that comes our way. Listen to James 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's just look at another passage that talks about the role of trials and testing. 1 Peter 1 and verses 6 and 7. It says, In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, God puts us believers through fiery trials so that all the dross, all the muck, all the rubbish is weaned out from us. You know, things that we deem are important that perhaps we need to still hold on to. And he does this weaning process. He puts us through the trial till, on, till only the, 
the only thing that remains is a resolute trust and faith in the Lord. See, God tests us so that our confidence will not rest on ourselves, but on God. You know, last week we were reminded of the fact that faith is the human perspective of seeing God for who he is and and then relying on him. You know, that's what faith is. But when we rely on ourselves, when our life is marked by a confidence in the self, it will only lead to our ruin. It will only lead to disaster. Why? Because we're not God. Because we're not all-powerful. Because we're not all-wise. Because we're not all-knowing. But God is. He alone is God. And this is an unchanging reality. And if God is the supreme reality in life, then the best thing, Brothers and sisters, let me say this again. The best thing for us as puny creatures is to see God for who he is and rely on him completely. That is the best thing for us to do. The worst thing for us to do is for us to rely on ourselves and go our own way. So that is what testing in the form of trials is meant to do. To cause us to see God more clearly and thereby put our confidence in Him rather than ourselves. So God tests us and in His testing it is always for our good and ultimately God gets all the glory through us that is rightfully his. Now whether you're going through a trial right now, or perhaps you will go through a trial sometime in the future. See, the important question that you and I need to ask when we go through trials is not so much, why did this trial happen in my life? Or even, God, would you just please take this trial away from me? I think there's a place for that, certainly. But more importantly, the question we need to ask is, what is it that God wants me to do in this trial? Because I know that he has brought this trial into my life to strengthen my faith in him. And I don't want to rely on myself and go that way. So God is testing Abram. And he's testing Abram about the promise of land by bringing about a famine in the land. See, but this famine, it didn't suddenly mean that God's promise to Abram to to bless him had changed in, in any way. God's promises had not changed just because there was a famine now in the land. Abram simply had to trust God like he did before. But now, at this point, Abram's overcome by fear. There's no food. 
How are we going to survive? How is my livestock going to survive? And Abram's faith at this point is not mature enough to trust God in every circumstance. With the famine in the land, instead of remaining in the land and trusting God and his word and even asking God what to do, Abram simply relies on his wisdom. And so then, the most natural course of action he takes as a result. He says to his whole household, let's move to Egypt. Now, why Egypt? See, because unlike the land of Canaan, which is on the hillside, Egypt is down in the valley on on a plain, a flat area where the river Nile flows. So Egypt, as a result, was a very fertile land. And so it wasn't dependent on the rain like the land of Canaan, which was totally dependent on rain for its produce and food. And so often in this period, it wouldn't be uncommon for people in those days from different regions to come to Egypt when there was famine in their land. Because Egypt did not, was not dependent on just rainfall because the river Nile was flowing and that, you know, it was a very fertile land as a result. So from a human perspective, this seems like a wise choice for Abram to take his whole household and go to Egypt at this time. But you don't see God telling Abram to leave the land. You don't see Abram calling on the name of the Lord at this point. If you remember, the only thing that God had told Abram was to go to the land that I will show you and I will bless you. And if the land of Canaan is the land that God had given to Abram, then this is the land that Abram needed to remain in unless God gave him some other advice. But fear has overtaken Abram. And that has caused him to doubt the promises of God, to doubt the word of God. And as a result he takes things into his own hands. Verse 10 says, he moves down to Egypt. Now, while definitely he physically moved down to Egypt because Egypt is in this plain, the text may also be hinting at the fact that Abram's going down spiritually. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Or as the ESV says, he will make straight your paths. And what Abram's doing here is just the opposite. 
He's not trusting in the Lord. He's leaning on his own understanding. Now, before we, you know, look down on Abram, oh, I can't believe Abram's doing this. I wonder how many of us, in fact, I think most of us would do exactly the same. If we found ourselves in such a difficult situation, at least we would have a tendency to do so. So now Abram's journeying now toward Egypt. More fear grips him. More insecurities take a hold of his heart because he's not trusting the Lord. He's just, he's just trusting in his own self and his plans and whatever else. And he perceives a great danger. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me but let you live. So here's the issue. See, Sarah, his wife, is a very beautiful woman. And to him, at this point, is a concern. See, because in those days, when you go into a foreign land, powerful men were known to abduct women. If they saw women they liked, they would just take the woman off. And so Abram's fear at this point, though, is not for his wife, but for himself. See, his concern is that when they get to Egypt and all the Israelites, uh, pardon me, all the Egyptians uh, see the two of them and see how beautiful she is and they figure out that they're married, or the, the only thing, the logical thing that they would do is kill off the husband and spare the wife. So Abram thinks of another plan now. So his fears have caused him to doubt, to take things into his own hands, and that leads him to further compromise and to further lies. Verse 13, this is what his plan is, and this is what he tells his wife. Please say you're my sister so that it may go well for me because of you. And my life will be spared on your account. Now, this is not the only time that Abram will do this. He will actually do something very similar in Genesis 20. And in that incident, we read um, in Genesis 20, 12, that Sarai is actually his half-sister or stepsister. Or in other words, Terah was also Sarai's father. They both had the same father, but a different mother. So there's half-truth here in what Abram is telling his wife to do. But it's nonetheless deception. It's still a lie. You know, sometimes people might think, oh, 
you know, hey, this is a difficult situation, so you know, some, perhaps a white lie is okay. You know, I can maybe just give enough information to give a certain impression toward people so that it covers up this side. But if it means that people get a wrong impression and we're covering up the whole truth, that is still deception and that is still a lie. This is not Abram's finest moment. Just think about the whole situation, just just for a moment. As a husband, I mean, Abram should have been telling his wife, Sarai, I know you're a very beautiful woman. I don't know what's going to happen when we get to Egypt. You know, if people try to come and take you, I will protect you at all costs. I will do this for your sake. That's what Abram should have been telling his wife. But what you see here is just the opposite. See, Abram's lost focus on the Lord. He's not trusting the Lord. He's just, he's just overcome by fear, trusting in his own schemes and own ways. And even for a moment, if he was just trusting the Lord and holding on to the promises, he would have realized that the Egyptians couldn't kill him. Because God had promised Abram, from you a great nation would come. So there's no way Abram would die. There's no way the Egyptians could kill him. Because if he was dead, no great nation is going to come through him. But he is overcome by fear, fear leading to doubt. And the only thing he's thinking of at this point is himself and how to preserve himself. The self has taken priority in Abram's life. He's trusting his plan of deception rather than the truth of God's word. And Abram tells his wife to lie so that he can live. Now look what happens in verses 14 and 15. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. So as Abram had suspected, the Egyptians saw the beauty of his wife. Pharaoh's officials saw her beauty, so much so that then word came to Pharaoh about Sarai. And because of the lie, Abram was spared, but the officials came and took Sarai into Pharaoh's harem to be one of his women. Now, I don't think You know, Abram was intentionally thinking of bringing harm to his wife. You know, perhaps he thought, hey, if it's a husband and wife scenario, for sure, because of the bond, they're going to strike off the husband and, you know, they'll just take the wife away. Perhaps if I say, if it's a brother-sister scenario, 
Perhaps they'll come to me, you know, asking for her because we're not married and that bond is not there. And perhaps I can negotiate and, you know, something could be played out and some, somehow through that I could get myself out. But what you see here, it's, it's Pharaoh and his officials who have come and taken his wife. And there's nothing that Abram can do right now. As a result of being overcome by fear and not trusting the Lord and his promises, this has caused Abram and his family to come to Egypt. And because of Abram's own foolishness, trusting in his own plans, it has now left his wife in danger. Sarai could be violated. And there is nothing that Abram can do. See, one of the things we should note from this, just as a quick note, is that when we're not trusting the Lord and living a life of compromise, it not only leads us individually into disaster, often it puts others around us also in harm's way. Our sin impacts other people as well. Now there's an irony here. And the irony is that Pharaoh not only spares Abram's life, Pharaoh also rewards him. Look at verse 16. It says he, talking about Pharaoh, treated Abram well because of her, that is Sarai. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. Apparently, Pharaoh was so impressed by Sarai and her beauty that Abram's rewarded richly by him as, as a sort of compensation. You know, one thing also to note here is that we should never think as believers. You know, sometimes when, you know, physically or materially things are prospering in our life, we should never automatically equate that to, oh, I'm doing well in the Lord. I'm walking according to God's ways. That's why things are going so well in my life. You know, there are many examples in Scripture, many examples even personally that I can think of, but just this one example here with Abram would tell you that that is not always true. In fact, Abram's sin has sinned, and yet he amasses all these riches. In fact, this description of flocks and herds, and particularly female donkeys and camels and so on, you know, one commentator said, some of this is um, very rare animals, and also, at least at that time, and to have some of these animals 
you know, he likened it to kind of like having a BMW or a, a Ferrari or something like that. You know, it's not the common people that would have camels and, and female donkeys and so on. The, the, these are very exquisite uh, possessions that he's got. And, and if you think, in one sense, God had promised that he would be blessed. So Abram's material blessing here too is simply an evidence of God's faithfulness to keep his promise. Even when Abram is compromised, it's even showing that the the promises of Abram are not conditioned on Abram himself. Now, one thing that we can learn from Abram's response in this section is this, that when we are driven by fear and then we doubt God and trust ourselves, there's no wisdom in this. There's absolutely no wisdom in this. It is actually folly. And it will only lead to disaster even though God may, in his grace, intervene. And this is an important lesson that we should learn. That we should never be overcome by fear because of the circumstances that we face. But we should continue to go back to God's word and God's character and God's promises. And that's what we need to hold on to. Because if we don't do that, We will go our own way, and that's folly, and that often leads to disaster unless God intervenes. And that now brings us to our second point, God's intervening and Abram's response. But let me just say this. Abram, because of his fear and lack of trust in God, he not only puts the life of his wife in danger, But if you just zoom out for a second, just from this couple, Abram and his wife, and think of it from the perspective of God's plan, God's promise of offspring was also in danger, at least from a human perspective. See, because God's intention was to bring the seed of Abram and Sarai, that is, Through them, the nation of Israel would come, and then through them, the promised Redeemer would come. But if Sarai was going to be out of the picture, that promised line of the seed could also potentially come to an end. So this has big implications. Redemptive historical implications here. So it seemed like Abram's not only jeopardized his wife's life, but he's also jeopardized God's promises as well. I mean, there's nothing Abram can do right now. And yet when all seemed lost because of human sin and failure, God suddenly intervenes 
and protect Sarai. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh and the whole palace is now afflicted by plagues. And when you think about it, this is also God fulfilling his promise to Abram. Remember God said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Now Pharaoh obviously unknowingly took Sarai into his harem. But by taking away Abram's wife, Pharaoh was coming against the fulfillment of God's blessing. The fulfill, Pharaoh was coming against the promises of God and the promise of the seed. He was being an obstruction here. So Pharaoh was, as a result, coming against Abram and the purposes of God. So therefore, God brings judgment on Pharaoh and his household. And there it says, with great plagues. You know, it's speaking of the severity of the plagues. Everyone in Pharaoh's palace, except Sarai, is afflicted with plagues. You know, perhaps as everyone in the palace is afflicted by uh, these plagues, some of the officials may have noticed, oh, there's one individual who's not afflicted with this plague, and that's Sarai. And perhaps they went to her and interrogated her and, and asked her, hey, hey, what's going on? What's the deal here? Why is it that everyone else in the palace is being plagued, and yet you are fine. And perhaps that way Sarah spilled the beans. Either way, the, the news reaches Pharaoh. And Pharaoh fears that more harm would come on him and the rest of the palace if Sarai remains. But at the same time, Pharaoh is also furious. And so he summons Abram. Look at verses 18 through to 20. It says, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh rebukes Abram for his deception in his life. And, and, just, and just think about this. Abram lied about his relationship with Sarai. And as a result of that lie, Pharaoh and his whole whole palace has suffered greatly. I mean, the plague's still going on. But at the same time, as a result of this lie, Abram put his wife at risk. But also, as a result of this lie, Abram has amassed a lot of 
riches. I mean, even a pagan king could see how terrible Abram's actions were. And so Pharaoh says, take your wife and go from here. Pharaoh basically deports Abram and his whole household from Egypt and says, get out from this land. You know, and what you see here is essentially God is using Pharaoh to get Abram to leave Egypt and to go, go to the land, exactly what God had told him previously, go to the land that I have promised to you. In some sense, Pharaoh is echoing that. Go from here back to the land. And so, in a sense, Pharaoh becomes a mouthpiece for God. Now, for the crime that Abram had committed against Pharaoh, Abram could have been killed. I mean, he's deceived Pharaoh. Pharaoh suffered so much. Pharaoh's given him lots of riches. He could have easily put him to death. But Pharaoh doesn't do that. Why? Because they're under this severe plague. And now Pharaoh is scared that something else will happen if he harms Abram or Sarai. So he doesn't want to touch them. And, it, and for the same reason, he doesn't take away the riches of Abram. In fact, he lets them go with all the riches, with everything that they possess, and said, take everything and get out from here. And what you see in this whole scene is Abram silent. Here's Abram, someone who claims to have left worshipping dead idols and has left that life of sin and darkness and someone who has claimed to put his trust in the living God. And yet now a pagan king, somebody who doesn't believe in this living God, is publicly rebuking Abram for his sinful actions. And now his whole household is deported from this place for his actions. I mean, what a public disgrace this would have been. He's publicly shamed and rebuked for his actions. Abram's testimony, his witness to the living God, is lost in Egypt. Very different from when it was when he first came to Canaan and he was building those altars in that dark place. Abram's testimony is lost. Still, God protected him and Sarai, and God's plans and promises, his plan of redemption would not be overthrown because of Abram's sin. So how does Abram now respond to all of this? Just look at the first few verses of the next chapter, 
Genesis 13 and verses 1 through 4. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had. And Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, and to the place where he'd made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram's publicly disgraced and rebuked. He's totally silent, recognizing his guilt. And Abram and his entire household, along with all of his possessions, they journey back to the land of promise. Back to the place where he had made an altar to the Lord. And he goes back there and worships God and calls on the name of the Lord. Why? Why does Abram do this? Because he realizes how sinful he is. He recognizes how God has been good to him even when he has not trusted in God. He recognizes how how God has provided for him even riches and protected him and his wife despite his sinfulness. He recognizes that he would not be back in the land if it wasn't for God. He recognizes that God is indeed faithful to keep his promises and I only need to trust him. He recognizes that God's plan is indeed to restore him back to God and so that And he is blessed so that God's blessing and plan of restoration would then go out into the rest of the world. He recognizes how undeserved he is of God's grace in his life. Because the reason why God did all this in his life is simply because of God's grace and God's grace alone. It had nothing to do with how good Abram was. He recognizes that God alone does the saving and God alone does the restoring and so he deserves all the glory. You know, as the Israelites are listening to this incident about Abram in Egypt, they would begin to recognize, hang on a second, a lot of the things that Abram experienced in Egypt are the same things that we experienced in Egypt. See, because it was famine that took the Israelites to Egypt. 
And there in Egypt, they were in bondage to Pharaoh, similar to Sarai. And the promise of the seed was in jeopardy in Egypt as the nation of Israel was under Pharaoh. And God sends plagues to Pharaoh and his household, just like he did with Abram and Sarai. And then Pharaoh lets them go with many of the riches from Egypt, just like with Abram. And they begin to see a pattern here. Oh, what happened there in Egypt is the same thing that happened with us. And they're also beginning to see that the reason why God did all this in Israel's life is only because of God's grace. That he is indeed faithful to keep his promises. And now as they're waiting to enter the land of promise, they need to realize that this same God that has brought them this far, that same grace is what will take them into the land. They simply need to trust in this same God. That their response need to be like Abram in this section. And as you keep moving on in the pages of Scripture, later on the prophets would then use this incident of the Exodus and say that in the same way, in the same pattern, Israel will return back to the land with riches from their exile and from bondage. And you particularly see that in the book of Isaiah. And then even as we come into the New Testament and as we think of us right now, this pattern of exodus from Egypt is a, that same pattern is set where God has freed us from that slavery and bondage to sin. And by grace, he is leading us home to that heavenly land. See, these patterns you will see more and more in the book of Genesis. You will see more and more uh, in the rest of the Bible. And what it simply emphasizes is this is God's way. This is what God does. I wonder if there's anyone here today that does not follow Jesus and live according to his ways. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, I don't think I'm good enough. See, my life, I've messed up so much, I, I don't think I could ever get right with God. Well, let me tell you, friend, the same God that we've read about in Abram's time is the same God that we believe in right now. He has not changed, and he will not change in the future. See, the wonderful news is this, 
that this gracious God came down in the form of a man in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. He came into this sin-cursed world and he lived a perfectly obedient life and then he died bearing the judgment of God for sinful people like you and me. And then he rose from the dead on the third day, proving that his death was sufficient to pay the price for the sins of his people. God is a gracious God. And he has provided for you, a way for you to be made right with him. He has provided a way by which you can be restored into right relationship with him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to him. You see, if you continue to reject this call, in the end, as you keep going down your own way, that will lead to disaster and ruin. And ultimately, God, who is perfect and righteous and holy, he himself will damn you for all of eternity. Turn to him while there is still time. God is a gracious God. He is the God who restores people to himself. That is his plan. Do not resist him. Humble yourself before him and turn to him. And if you say you believe, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, then I would say turn away from your sin. Turn away from living for yourself and turn to Jesus and live for him and live according to his ways. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, come and talk to me or Donnie, one of the members of this church, or perhaps this person sitting next to you, if you think they're a Christian, and they'll be able to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians and are believers, as one commentator put it, we not only share in Abram's faith, but we also share in some of his weaknesses and his sinful tendencies. But praise God for his goodness and his grace, hey? See, it doesn't excuse us from our sin, but it does mean that even when we do sin and we stuff up, God's plan to restore more people to himself is in no way jeopardized. God will still accomplish that despite us and despite our weaknesses and despite our sinfulness. But even more on a personal account, for those of us who have experienced God's grace, we understand that even on an individual level, God's plan is truly to restore us back to him. And it is a continuous journey of moving in that direction. You see, despite Abram failing miserably when God tested him, Abram was restored back to God. Why? Again, simply because of God's grace. 
because he saw the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the power of God and the grace of God. And that humbled him. That caused him to bow down and worship. And that caused him to rely on God more. And in a sense, it grew his faith a little more in God. Because he realized God alone does the saving, God alone does the restoring, and therefore to him alone be the glory. And so it is the same for us as believers. For those who have experienced God's sovereign grace, we realize yeah, God's plan for us is to restore us back to him. And while on this journey we will go this way and that way, God will still bring us back. That's his promise. Because his plan is to restore a people to himself. And if you are one of his, you can be guaranteed, no matter where you go, God will come after you with his grace and he will pursue you back to him. So that all you will see in the end is his greatness and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and it will cause you to bow down and worship him and say, to you alone be the glory, you alone do the saving, you alone do the restoring. I don't want to rely on myself, I bow down to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that even though we are your people, so often we stray away. And yet we thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your grace that brings us back to yourself. Help us, Father, as a result to continue to seek after you and to live for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.